This is the Education Gadfly Show. I think Sean Penn is redeeming himself by working for the CIA. Do you? What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at edexcellence.net. And now, please join me in welcoming my co-host, out of hiding the El Chapo of education policy, Robert Pondicio. That makes you Sean Penn. That's exactly right. Oh, hey, hey, hey. Well, at least Charlize Theron didn't break up with me, dude. Oh, my gosh. What is uh, up with all of this? Sean Penn is an interesting guy. Uh, uh, you know what? I'm sorry. I have no patience here. But, you know, as you know, I spent a lot of years in the print journalism business. So yeah. I'm, I'm kind of in mourning over Rolling Stone. I think one of two things should happen. Either they need to give up or their readers. Hey, uh, I mean, we're still not sure that maybe Sean Penn was just working with the U.S. government. Oh, that, that this was all an Stop elaborate it. plot. The it, U.S. It government that it he has reviled and hey, given every that's what makes it such a great plot. Not you can that. imagine the pitch. They said, all right, here's the plan. <sighs> we're going to have you set up an interview with this guy, and we're going to track you. I mean, it's, it's, it's brilliant. Are you done? I'm done. Good. Is yes. Sean Penn done? Uh, we'll oh, see. Done. He may be done because if that was not, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if he did in fact lure the government to him, uh, I would be watching my back. He's now in hiding. I think that's true. Okay. Hey, but we're 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 not the El Chapo podcast. We're not the El Chipo podcast. We're we the Education Gadfly podcast. Yes, we are. Okay. Late. Lots of interesting things happening. Clara, let's play. Pardon the Gadfly. The Friedrichs versus California Teachers Association case reached the Supreme Court this week. How will this ruling impact education reform? Mike, for those of you who are not watching at home, is doing a happy dance that right now. That is my happy dance. You're right. Go ahead. Explain. Oh, my gosh. Explain. What are you talking about? This is great news. So, it uh, certainly looked like uh, there are at least five justices who are ready uh, to declare the plaintiffs the winners in this one, which would mean that California and uh, every other state that is so far not a right-to-work state for public employee unions will become a right-to-work state. What that means is that California and these other mostly uh, blue states, uh, teachers will now be able to both opt out of the mm-hmm. union, which they can already do A now, new opt-out movement. A new opt-out movement. And uh, they don't have to pay these agency fees mm-hmm. anymore where they have been made to uh, pay for collective bargaining and other activities of the union, even if they are not members. The thing is, these agency fees are almost as expensive as membership fees. Okay, and time out. Let me, ask, let me point out that you are not answering Clara's question. Well, I'm giving Clara's background. Clara's question was, how how will this ruling, and by the way, caveat here, you cannot assume you know how the ruling is going to go based on oral discussions. That's we correct. Know this. We could be surprised. But let's just assume that you're right. They're going to throw this out. Yep. No more, no more yep. agency fees. The question that Clara asked, the question I want to hear you answer is, how will this hey, ruling are, are you the host impact? here? What, what's oh, going sorry. on? This is some kind of mutiny. What, yeah, what's happening? Go. How will it impact education reform? Right, point, point is, if it goes uh, against the unions, they are going to lose a lot of money. Right? They're going to okay. not only lose the money from these agency fees, they Still are also... answering the Robert, question. I'm getting there. They are also going to likely lose a lot of members because members are now going to choose between a thousand dollar fee a year and zero. And before they were choosing between eight thousand dollars a year and maybe eight hundred dollars a year. Okay. Okay. This is going to have a couple of things for education reform. One is in all of these big political fights, the unions are going to have less political money to 
to spend. Now, you know, supposedly uh, the, the non-members were already to opt able to opt out of the political spending, but a lot of this stuff yeah. is squishy. What's sure. political, what's not? So they're going to have less money. Uh, the unions are probably going to have to find other ways to save money. They're going to have, for example, fewer resources in order to uh, provide experts when collective bargaining. The way it works right now, all over the country, you've got these volunteer school boards who go up against the unions, and the unions have paid people who fly in and help them negotiate. Well, they're going to have less money for that kind of stuff. All of this is going to mean that the unions are going to be somewhat weaker than they are now. That doesn't mean that their power completely goes away. There's just still a lot of teachers and teachers' families. Uh, and, you know, in states like California, there's still going to be plenty of union members and political spending and all the, the rest, but they mm-hmm. will likely be. Here's the other thing that, that Mike Antonucci thinks is likely to happen, is that the more moderate members of the union, people who maybe, you know, could take it or leave it, but uh, just hasn't been worth the while to, to opt out at this point. If they now decide, hey, I could save a thousand bucks, yeah, I'm opting out. Mm-hmm. The union becomes smaller, but it sure. becomes more ideologically strident. Oh, interesting. Only the true believers stay behind. Yeah, uh, that makes sense, actually. And so, you know, if you want to see a glimpse of the future, look to the Chicago Teachers Union, for oh, example. Do we have to? And how they, uh, and how they act. Okay. No, I mean, my, my, the only reason I was being kind of obstreperous on the point, and, and I will freely admit this is somewhat of an unorthodox view, especially in these halls, I just, at the end of the day, I was saying to one of our colleagues, if you gave me a magic wand and said, okay, you can fix anything you want in education, go down the list, I'd get pretty far down my list before I'd get around to defanging the unions. Not that I, not that I think that they are good guys. I just don't think that they have the deleterious effect on education outcomes that a lot of people who do what we do seem to believe. I don't know. I don't know, Robert. I mean, when, when look, it, they, 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 it is certainly the case that there are plenty of states or school districts that are unionized and, and do get good results. Massachusetts sure. uh, is the best example. And a lot, just the opposite. But uh, Right. You would also say in recent years, you know, we see Florida making big sure. gains. You see Arizona making big gains. You know, D.C. has had this big turnaround where the unions are very weak. Yep. Uh, you know, I, I just do think that it is helpful sure. uh, if you can remove some of the the, uh, the worst parts of the unionization. Fair enough. And, and again, I don't know that it's so much, I mean, it works on several levels. One is the literally the contracts that mm-hmm. can be barriers to improvement. Mm-hmm. But the other thing is the political power, that they sure. try to stop so many of the promising reforms that are out there. Uh, and if they have less, fewer members, less money, less clout, uh, that means that they are going to have a harder time getting in the way of promising reform. Yeah. All of that true. I, I'm not disagreeing with any of that. And believe me, I'm not suggesting that the unions are, are good guys in, in our struggles. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I just don't think that they are the you know the three-headed monsters mm-hmm. of, uh, of some people's beliefs. But that's just because you're Mr. Curriculum, Robert. Oh, you know, well, yeah, so, you yeah, know, if, if you were a true believer on structural reform, you would feel differently. I'm not going to gainsay that. You're right. Yeah. All right. Okay. You, you saw that Al Shanker poster up in your office? Is that, uh, <laughs> just kidding. I, I do not. Just kidding. Okay. Topic number two. NPR recently wrote that kindergarten is the new first grade. Our school is asking for too much too soon. Robert? No. Next question. <laughs> oh, so now you're going to be the one who... Uh, okay. like, like, no, I'm going to push you on this one a little bit. First of all, the evidence. Uh, is there really... Uh, evidence? Uh, is there really evidence that uh, that kindergarten is the new first grade? I thought I saw something recently from AERA that said, well, we looked and actually uh, kindergarten still looks pretty much the same as it did 10, 20 years ago. I, I think, and I don't have the transcript in front of me, I think the NPR piece uh, that Claire was alluding to was that um, teachers themselves report uh, higher expectations in terms of reading mm-hmm. than they did uh, a generation ago. Uh, and NPR being NPR, I think it looked somewhat askance at that. I do not. I think that's a very, very good thing. I mean, the data mm-hmm. could not be more clear. And, you know, as, as regular listeners to this podcast know, I still teach uh, one day a week working predominantly with low-income uh, kids mm-hmm. of color. Uh, so that is the population that I'm concerned with. And the evidence could not be clear that if kids are struggling in first grade, they have a 90% chance of still struggling in fourth grade. If they are, or three 
three out of four strugglers in third grade are still struggling mm-hmm. in ninth grade. Right. So if there's any good guy that the education mm-hmm. reform movement at large has created, it's this sense of urgency around early liter- early education in general and early literacy in, in specific. Uh, and we dare not let go of that. You know, so people complain. They say, well, the Common Core, they expect kids to be doing some reading by the end of kindergarten. Nothing right? wrong I'm not with quite that. sure what, you know, how what the sounding out words a little bit, that kind of stuff. Uh, some some degree of fluency. Sure, absolutely. By uh, the end of kindergarten. By the end of kindergarten. The question would be, I mean, you say, well, better is, you know, sooner is better. Well, we yes. wouldn't say that, okay, so therefore we're going to try to get three-year-olds to start sounding out words. But a right? lot of three-year-olds come into kindergarten already with, mm-hmm. with, with letter recognition and yep. knowing how to spell their name. I mean, how do we draw these lines? How do we know? I mean, why, you know, I mean, there is such a thing as too young to do some sure. stuff, right? And so, I, I don't know, is is how what, what kind of evidence do you have to look to to say, hey, maybe these people have a point that if we try to push it too early for some kids, uh, it's just not going to work and it's going to provide un- unnecessary stress. This is this is that, uh, what was that ridiculous piece in the Atlantic a few weeks ago about the joyful, illiterate yes. kindergartners yes. Of, of Finland yes. or something yes. such? And, and by the way, my, my, my preschooler is in a Waldorf preschool, as many listeners know, that otherwise known as Finland here do in America. as I say, not as I do, says Mike Drilly. Uh, you know, he spends all his day playing outside in the woods and uh, yeah, gardening. So you're unschooling your kid then. We're paying a lot of money for him not to learn how to read <laughs> is what you do in the Waldorf yeah. uh, system. Uh, I, I do not plan to stick with that system uh, after preschool. But, you know, look, is this just more of the same in terms of upper middle class parents like me? Uh, we don't like to have our little ones be too pressured, uh, you know, and, and we find, boy, my, my kid goes to preschool and does nothing but play and sing mm-hmm. all day. And he's also learning to read. And, and so they're, therefore, well, why do why are we forcing those you know, poor kids? Play is not play. Uh, A lot of you know, play is building literacy skills. Mm-hmm. And this yeah, is no, the, not in the Waldorf. They, they perhaps. Really, I have I no mean, experience with You can't Waldorf. even have letters on, on your shirts. Oh, I mean, my goodness. Yeah. Uh, no, but I mean, you know, again, I think this is one of those classic false dichotomies that, uh, and, and, and take me to the kindergarten someplace where, where kids are working with worksheets all day and they're not playing at all. This is just one of those ridiculous. You don't think series. those places exist? I really don't think they I exist. think there's some horrible school districts out there I want you to who responded to the pressure of No Child Left Behind and other things and had no clue what to do if, okay. and, and had five-year-olds sit down and do Here's worksheets. Here's what I will say. You try making a five-year-old sit down and no, do I worksheets. No, I know. I'm just, but try that's, it. but the, the, my, my concern is that we would all agree that's terrible practice. Of course. And yet, what do you do if that's actually the case out there? I, well, first, show me where that's the okay. case. I, just, right. I, I earnestly do not believe yeah. that any kindergartner in America is, mm-hmm. is being forced to do nothing but sit in front of worksheets all day. Not yep. one. All right. There's your challenge. Uh, yeah. Graduate students, find us one. Yeah, I'm talking to you, Alfie Cohn. I know find you're out us. there. Find us that kid. Okay, topic number three. The U.S. Department of Education is asking for public comments on what the new role of federal regulation under ESSA should be. What are your thoughts? <laughs> the thing I love about this, they, they, you look at the public uh, the, the, the announcement in the Federal Register, as mm-hmm. I have, and they say, you know, we would like to know what you think we should regulate on in order the regulations that might be helpful or necessary How about none let's <laughs> start with none helpful that's very interesting right yes Let, let's start with let's a, start with zero none. based yeah. budgeting okay right. uh, it is possible if you really have to do the regulations you know what you can do you can just cut and paste from the bill itself and that's it you can just repeat the bill and you say throw thousands of people out is. of work mike i know no 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 it doesn't take thousands but uh, I, and i know these people at the department they mean well uh but they are uh, busy bodies and micromanagers What's that and thing to that was the road to hell is paved with what again? Yes, exactly. Okay. Uh, so we at Fordham are excited that we're having a big accountability design competition. And this is going to be fun. And uh, what we've we've encouraged people, including you, Robert, mm-hmm. uh, to come up with ideas for how state accountability systems could work under ESSA. And part of the reason that I want to do this right away is to surface promising ideas right. that you may look at and say, well, I'm not 
quite sure if that's allowed under the law or not. That maybe doesn't quite meet the letter of the law uh, as a way to identify areas where the department should either tread carefully, like Mm -hmm. make sure whatever you do, don't write the regulation in a way that makes this good idea unallowable. Or could even be proactive and say, hey, you know, here's 10 ideas that we've heard of and and we are okay with all of them. Mm -hmm. My my big one, this will surprise you not in the least. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm I'm back to early literacy. I'm I'm a content guy. I'm a literacy guy. My big concern uh, under the, 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 the past regime under NCLB has been we've created conditions that that almost literally disincentivize teachers to invest in vocabulary and background knowledge from the mm-hmm. earliest days of school. Reading tests, speaking of good intentions, yep. uh, get in the way of that. Uh, so I'm not going to sit here and give away my ideas, but mm-hmm. I'm going to tell you that that's what I'm going to be focused like a laser on is how yeah. can we create the conditions uh, through assessments, through, through accountability yep. that encourage schools to make those patient, steady investments in background knowledge and vocabulary that are, are not happening right mm-hmm. now. No, I mean, I think that that's exactly right. I mean, some of this stuff gets super wonky, but important. I mean, so for example, you know, they added one, you know, every state has to have an indicator in their accountability system now right. that looks at the progress that English language learners are making towards language proficiency. Mm-hmm. That's never been as prominent a part of state accountability systems before. Uh, it makes a lot of sense. A lot of schools sure. out there have lots of English language learners, but what if your school doesn't have a lot of English right. language learners? What if you have 10 kids out of the whole school who are English language learners? Should that indicator count a whole lot towards your grade? Uh, You know, it should count as much as if 50% of your kids are English language learners. That's the sort of thing where, hey, you know, you might want to have a little nuance there in your accountability system to have the weighting differ depending on that student population. But again, I I don't think anybody sort of thought that through when writing the law. I think states are going to come up with ideas like that. And you just don't want the department to have this mindset where, uh, you know, they they say no to ideas that that make sense. Because if they do, then local control is a myth. Uh, yeah, and and the idea that this law gives a lot of power back to the right. states. Uh, and furthermore, you know, you what you do is you recreate uh, a system where it, it just people look at it and it it doesn't make sense. Right. Let's you know? replace the federal system that's not working with fifty state systems right. that aren't working. You know, so we get to and, and in this example again, okay, so now you're going to have some school somewhere that's a great school sure. but gets a D because ten of its kids who yeah. are English <laughs> well, language learners aren't doing well, and you say, yeah. come on, that that just doesn't pass the smell test. Not to mention, you know, what, what's going to happen? Those, those, uh, the rest of the schools going to be really mad at those ten immigrant kids from Mexico. I, I mean, totally it's they're practically like calling on Donald Trump to make this an issue. Uh, you got lost me there. I kind of agree with you. I'll except trouble. I'm <laughs> here we <go> again. Um, <laughs> I'm always going to have at least some concern for let's not go back to the bad old days where you could completely just throw those ten kids under a bus and say, hey, we're a great school. You're not a great school for those ten kids. How, how about this? Those ten kids don't do well. Then you, instead of getting an A, you get an A minus. Uh, I'm, I'm I'm flexible, Mike. We'll see you on February 2nd for the design competition. Yes, you will. Look, these are the kinds of things that that, uh, are going to be in play. And and the fundamental question, of course, the ideological question is who should get to decide? Right. I mean, you know, conservatives generally say on all of these issues, why should the federal government have anything to do with any of this? Let the states decide. The, you know, the civil rights left is going to say, oh, no, no, no. Uh, If you're without oversight, the states are going to find creative ways to throw poor and minority kids under the bus. I suppose that's true. But I mean, do you really believe, and I'm not, I'm not being naive here, but do you really believe in 2016 that states need an incentive to not throw large numbers of their own kids under the bus? I, Come on. No, look. It's not 1964 I, I, And look, Robert, we're on the same side on that one. You know, but at the same time, will there be examples of states doing stupid things? From carelessness, yeah, but not out of, you know, malfeasance. Well, well, people say, well, if that were the case, Robert, why do we have so many states that still don't fund poor and minority schools at an appropriate level? Right. That's not just carelessness. Fair enough. Uh, that's a lack of 
political will. Okay, uh, but you know what? What we're going to need, we need somebody from the civil rights left to come on the show here and talk talk through these issues with us. Yeah, so if good. you are from the civil rights left and you're listening, call Mike Petrilli. Call me. Let's talk. Okay, that's all the time we got for Pardon the Gadfly. And now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. So uh, if you had to pick, who's, who is uh, your favorite, El Chapo or Sean Penn? Uh, I don't have a favorite out of those two. <laughs> really, really don't. Kind of, that's a head scratcher, isn't it? What the heck? Quite a story. Quite a story. I think, I think Sean Penn is redeeming himself by working for the CIA. Do you? Or the DIA uh, or well, whatever you know, it might I be. I had warm and fuzzy feelings about him because of his reaction after Katrina where he was, you saw him in a little boat like mm-hmm. helping people. Like yeah. he went down to Katrina, it really yeah. helped. So I've always kind of had a soft spot for him even though I don't agree with his politics. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I was kind of dismayed at this latest mm-hmm. news. Mm-hmm. So Head scratcher. Well, speaking of head scratchers, what do you have for we us have this week? We have a new study out by IES that provides results for four grade students on the 2012 NAEP pilot computer-based writing assessment. Okay, so the study asked whether fourth graders can fully demonstrate their writing ability on a computer. Okay, mm-hmm. and what factors are related to fourth graders' writing performance on that computer? All right, about 10,400 fourth graders from 510 private and public schools were asked to compose writing tasks intended to gauge their ability to persuade or change a reader's opinion, mm-hmm. explain their understanding of a topic, Mm-hmm. or convey an experience, real or imaginative. Mm-hmm. So it's like narrative, persuasive writing, descriptive writing, basically. Okay. Yep. They were randomly assigned two writing tasks out of 36. They had 30 minutes to complete each of their writing tasks. And then the study built in all this other information from a 2010 paper-based pilot. So we got both a paper-based pilot and we got a computer-based pilot. Okay. And then we have 2011 NAEP results for grade 8 and 12 computer-based tests. So we actually have the real test. So it's a bunch of stuff. Okay. okay. But that's not that important. What is important is they were all different groups of kids. Hmm. So we can't sort of say like this, these kids are the same kids. Okay. Cause mm-hmm. this is a cross cohort, whatever. Okay. Um, but they, right. They didn't have Johnny sit down one day and, and do it do on the computer and another and day do it on the paper. Ditto. Why did not just say hmm. that? That's exactly right. Um, but they did have results for an analysis of 15 tasks that were common to both the paper version of the mm-hmm. test and the computer version of the okay. test. They spent a lot of time talking about these 15 tasks. Okay. Mm-hmm. Key findings. Number one, 68% of fourth graders received scores in the bottom half of the scoring scale on the computer pilot. So the majority of kids are in the bottom on the computer test. Okay. Number two. But isn't that just, I mean, I, I guess I'm I guess I'm not quite understanding that uh, like 50% of the kids are always going to be below average, right? Is that all that it's the saying? The bottom that half of the scoring scale. So they were like a six point scale score. Oh, I see. So, so that, that's the, a criterion yeah, reference. Yeah, it's a criterion okay. reference. All right. Sorry. So, so a lot of these kids did not do well. Didn't do well. And I didn't okay. want to get into the nitty gritty right. of the six point scale. Okay. All right. Number two, the percentage of responses in the top two categories of the scale, mm-hmm. okay, um, was higher on the computer than the paper assessment. Hmm. Okay. Related, high performers scored substantively higher on the computer than on the paper assessment. So the high performers did good on the computer mm-hmm. um, on the, the rather than the paper. Low and middle performers did not appear to benefit from using the computer. Hmm. So either way, you know, it just seemed like a non-factor for mm-hmm. our low and middle performers. But then they dug into some nitty-gritty. So the number of words produced by fourth graders was smaller on the 2012 computer pilot than on the 2010 
paper pilot. Mm-hmm. Okay, even though they're not the same kids, but still, they're not they're not um, producing as many words on the computer mm-hmm. as they are on paper because they're pecking around the keyboard looking for their. Well, that's what we're going to get to. Low performers produce fewer words by about sixty than middle and high performers. Middle kids produced about one hundred and four words. High performers about one hundred and seventy nine. Mm-hmm. And then they dug into all these things that might have to do with you know all these factors that might relate to these results. And having access to the internet at home is associated with text link. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you have access. It has to do with how many words you're typing up. Okay. Um, use of editing tools was also associated with having access to the internet. So you're more likely to use your spell check or in your backspace, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, specifically, the longer a student's response, the higher a score it is likely mm-hmm. to receive. So uh, we tend to like those longer responses. Mm-hmm. And fourth graders, another little factoid, fourth graders more likely to say that they preferred to write on paper rather than computer. Um, if they didn't have access to the internet at home, they also um, had lower average scores. So anyway, all this stuff seems to be related relative to mm-hmm. if you like to write on paper, lo and behold, you end up having lower average scores on mm-hmm. the computer. Um, there are a ton of stats. It's a really long report. I just picked out a few. Um, but anyway, the bottom line is pretty simple. They say, you know, since low performers have less exposure to writing on the computer mm-hmm. and they produce shorter text, guess what? They are likely struggling with keyboarding, yep. right? Which takes time away from the cognitive work, the brain power of actually mm-hmm. developing your essay, right? right? And I mean, this is great. This is simple stuff. What do you think they recommended? Uh, uh, more internet access for low income well, kids? What? Teach the kids keyboarding. Teach the kids keyboarding. Um, hmm. Tell them how to do your spell check and all that. And I guess, I mean, especially the low performers, but I'm just kind of thinking it's been a long time since I've been in elementary mm-hmm. school. Um, but wouldn't you think they're teaching keyboard elementary schooling? Or are they just assuming kids know keyboarding? Well, I've seen it in my son's school that yeah. there's been some of it and there's some of it encouraged for them to practice at home. And there's some little games that you can play where you, you know, I don't know, have to follow some little character okay. around and, you know, practice your keyboarding. Uh, it's interesting. And now this was back in 2010, 2012. Well, so you mm-hmm. also wonder whether things have changed mm-hmm. at all mm-hmm. since then. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the Internet access, I thought, Amber, that we had made huge progress Excellent. in closing that digital device. Divide. Although maybe some of those studies count if you have a smartphone at home, oh, for example. Yeah, that's, that's not going to help the kid that's versus what I was wondering. Too. Yeah, I having an actual computer. Like how they operationalized internet access and whether it was your phone. So why not just say, you know what, fourth grade is too early to do the, the testing on Keyboard. online. Just keep doing paper-based tests in fourth grade. Yeah, no, it's a but, good. But Park and Smarter really Balanced good. have have moved on. They right? have. They've moved on, and they can, they offer the paper version. But I think the push and it's this has been this for 20 years, right? We're pushing, closing the digital divide and more and more and more states have put money and yeah. infrastructure into these computers and schools. Um, that's why these testing windows, you know, these testing windows can be six weeks long yep. because some schools still have one computer lab where they mm-hmm. got to shuffle the groups of kids through to take the test. Um, so it's definitely better in other places. Well, Henrico County, where I now live, mm-hmm. has a laptop and has had a laptop for every kid for what, yep. 20 years or something. Like they were the, you know, yep. the forerunners. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're still doing it. So, yeah, I think access, obviously, we know this uh, looks different uh, depending on where you live. Our, I mean, our, our Park and Swinter Balance, they're doing this at the third grade level. They are. Yeah. Yes. Very. very <laughs> hmm. 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 Right. Mm-mm-mm-mm. And I don't know. I tend to think that we probably do need to move kids into the computer age pretty early. I just, I don't know. I used to be really bothered. I don't know about you. Yeah. I mean, you have kids. I don't. But I used to be so bothered when you'd see kids, you know, playing on computers when they were just so dang young and 
Yeah. Of course, there's all these studies showing that, you know, we need to, you know, be careful about this. Yes. But I don't think we really know yet, you right. know, if it can damage or stunt their growth or all these other things. Mm-hmm. Um, but it tends to be like this is the way the world's moving. So I'm really torn as to how young is too young. Yeah. And are you? What are, what are your thoughts? No, yeah, look, you're absolutely worried about, uh, you know, limiting screen time. But the other thing, and, and I've tried to write about this in various mm-hmm. ways, is to say, when there is screen time, can you try to be choosy about what it is? Right. Uh, and there's some stuff that's more nutritious than others yeah, and try to avoid the empty calorie screen time. I mean, every once in a while, just letting the kids have fun is fun, but there's a lot of cool stuff out there that is educational in a variety of ways mm-hmm. and fun, mm-hmm. uh, including these games to help kids learn how to keyboard. Yes. Uh, so, Very well said. My godson right. likes Doodle Drop, but Doodle Drop. Well, you to check try that to out. catch these little bombs that fall from the air. I don't think it's too educational, but yeah. whatever. Check out Leo's Fortune. Very, very beautifully designed game. Uh, All right. Well, thank you, Amber. You're welcome. All right. That is all the time we've got for this week. Uh, Robert, how are you going to tunnel out of prison this time? You got a plan? Sean Penn left me a, uh, a shovel. Excellent. Good. Good. I'm glad he did. All right. Till next week. I'm Robert Pondisio. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gadfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at edexcellence.net.